Well, again, we want to thank all of you that are here today, uh, this morning, both in person and also on YouTube. Uh, we are going to begin a, a new series this morning in the book of Esther. And I have to confess that I've only read the book of Esther um, a couple of times in my Christian life. Usually uh, when I do the one year, one year reading of the Bible, I would just, you know, kind of blow through it real quick. Uh, until now, I've read it probably in the past uh, couple months, uh, 15 times, uh, and listened to it many times, and I'm amazed at what this book actually uh, contains, and I think you're going to enjoy it uh, very much. I was privileged uh, during my time in seminary uh, to take the last class that Dr. R.C. Sproul taught at RTS in Orlando uh, on God's providence, that was the uh, title of the course. And uh, he wrote a book uh, called The Invisible Hand, which is about the providence of God. And so I've, in honor of my former professor, I've entitled our series as The Invisible Hand. And so if you have uh, your Bible with you or if you want to look in your bulletin, I'm going to read the first uh, few verses of the book of Esther and then we'll do a brief introduction this morning. Uh, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. So now hear God's word. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his glory, royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, And when these days were completed, the king gave food for all the people present in Susa, the capital, both great and small, a feast that lasted seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abgatha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was very lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti 
refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. So, uh, like I said, I've only read the book of uh, Esther a few times until deciding to do uh, this ser- this series. And uh, I have to tell you, I, I, I'm amazed at what I discovered studying this, and I think you're going to enjoy it as well. The book of Esther is a literary masterpiece. It's very short. There's just ten chapters. And yet it's put together by this author, or perhaps authors, in such a way that it just is magnificent. There's uh, the use of, of plot and the rising and falling of tension. There's structure uh, that's embedded in it. We'll explain all that as we go along. There's repetition. There's the use of numbers. There's all these sevens. And you, you start asking yourself, what's all that? Uh, the book of Esther uh, is a book that was written to be humorous. And in order to understand Esther, you really have to get your head around that, that the authors were writing a book of satire to satirize these unbelievable kingdoms, this one, the Persian kingdom, uh, that had actually crushed Israel and Judah and uh, destroyed their nation. And with exquisite Jewish, very Jewish humor, they bring this satirization of uh, this story. But it's completely historical. You see in the very beginning here, he's naming names and dates and times. And if you read Herodotus, who is called the father of modern history, Herodotus lived in the 4th century uh, B.C., and he was a Greek, and he wrote the histories of the Persian and Greco wars. I don't know if any of you are... uh, uh, pop culture aficionados, but if you've seen the the um, graphic novel 300, don't admit it. Uh, but if you have, that's uh, what this is about: the Spartans and Thermopylae, and the 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 Greeks defeating the Persian, uh, and the and the big guy in the movie uh, is Xerxes, is Ahasuerus, according to the comic book. So these histories that he wrote explain what was going on at this time. And the book of Esther aligns with it very precisely. Not exactly. There's some things, and I'll explain that uh, later on. But the author of this book is extremely familiar with the Persian court. He knows what's going on in the Persian court. And all of the interesting, and I'll explain them as we go through the series, the customs and the ways these ancient Near East kingdoms operated and how they worked uh, their way uh, and their vastness and their money. I mean, some scholars believe that this particular festival that he had for 180 days was him gathering all of his generals and all of his military people, and this is also verified in history, to get them ready to go to war, the first war with the Greeks. His father, Darius, had tried to conquer Greece and wasn't able to do it. So Xerxes is gathering his forces in order to go back and have another war with them. He also gets defeated 
and we'll talk about that later on. The amount of money that was present, these treasuries that you hear are almost mind-boggling. You know, they had to pay their armies. They had to pay off political leaders in the countries. And this is a vast empire from Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia all the way to India, all of Asia Minor, and all of the ancient Near East. It's a gigantic kingdom. And and Xerxes, and of course uh, Darius, and, and Artaxerxes II, his son, and later on Alexander the Great, the great Greek general, absolutely conquered these areas and kept them together by creating these provinces and satrapies and different governments and letting people obey their own laws and have their own gods. They didn't make everybody bow down to just their god unless it was somebody like Nebuchadnezzar who was trying to become a god. But these guys were different. They were very brilliant uh, politicians and military generals. But what you find in the book of Esther is not one single reference to God. Nothing. No mention of God. No mention of prayer. No mention of miracles. No mention of anything transcendent. It's just straight history. And scholars, since the time of this book, rabbinic scholars and Christian scholars, said, why is this book even in the Bible. Martin Luther hated this book because it didn't uh, have any references to God. So he said, what's the value of it? And I think that it has tremendous value and so has uh, so have scholars uh, through church history. Martin Luther was a minority. Even the rabbis say that the book of Esther is an amazing piece of literature, history, and reveals something that we don't often talk about, and that is the hiddenness or the invisibility um, of God. In the book of Esther, while there's no mention, in fact, even when you see a coincidence or a reversal of fortune, which is called uh, peripatia, and I'll explain that in a moment, even when you see these things, they're not ascribed to God. They're not ascribed to anything. They're just... There it doesn't say by chance, doesn't say by the way, something unusual happened, nothing. It's just straight narrative, very terse, very to the point, with a lot of humor embedded. Because the author or authors is, knows that the people reading this do believe in God. But God is nowhere in this book. Now, I... I have to confess to you again, (laughs) a lot of uh, self-disclosure this morning. Um, I I don't know what your relationship uh, is like with God. Maybe he's talking to you all the time. Maybe you, you have all this feeling of his presence always with you. That has not been my case. I've been a Christian for, I don't know, 40 some years, 50, almost 50 years. And I've never heard God speak. I've never seen an out-and-out miracle. I've never had anything like that. In fact, God is invisible to me. And here, I'm your pastor. Are you all going to fire me? Um, That was supposed to be funny. All right. So, no. I mean, I've not, I don't have those supernatural things in my life. And I'm sure that some of you do. And you can tell us, well, you know, God spoke to me and he told me and he led me and he did this and he did that. 
all great. I, I'm, I'm fine with that. Just know that we can't verify it. We just have to take your word for it. There's no way to verify it. We just have to take your word for it. The book of Esther is God absent, gone. He's not around. And yet, I would argue and will argue that he is more present in this book than perhaps any other book. And it is perhaps the most relevant book to the normal life, normal people who don't have these extraordinary uh, occurrences of the supernatural. You know, back in the day, there were there was a ministry I remember way back when I first became a Christian, and and their theme was expect a miracle every day. Did any of you remember that? Expect a miracle every day. The problem with that is, if you had a miracle every day, what would they be? Non miracles. A miracle, by definition, rarely happens. And in your Bible, this great big book with 66 books, 30, uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, written by dozens of authors, uh, there's only five brief periods of history where you ever see a miracle. The ministry of Moses, the ministry of Elijah, the ministry of Elisha, the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a little bit in the, in the Acts of the Apostles. And that's it. In your whole Bible. Hardly any miracles. And yet we think that everything is miraculous. And the book of Esther is asking us to ask the questions. What is your life really like? And do you believe in God? Will you trust Him even when you don't see any obvious presence? And uh, so let's jump into it and look at it. Esther answers some big questions. One of them is, where is God? If you were with Moses on Mount Sinai and you saw the burning bush and heard the voice, the audible voice coming out of that burning bush, you would have said, that, there's God. If you had been at the Red Sea and seen the sea open, you would have said there is God. If you had seen the Lord Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, you may have said, wow, there's God. Of course, you would have been the rare person because most people that actually saw these things, what? They didn't believe it. They made up. In fact, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders got together and said, what do we do about this? And one of them raised his hand and said, I know what we do. We've got to kill him. Now, if you had seen a miracle like that, would you have wanted to kill him? That's human nature. To want to destroy what we don't understand or cannot control. And so right in the middle of your Bible, God puts this book here where God is completely absent by design. The, 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 the writers of this book knew what they were doing. And they also tell it in a humorous way. So it answers big questions. Where is God? Will he protect his people even when it doesn't look like it? You know, the church is in trouble in the 21st century. But it's always been in trouble. Name a time when the church wasn't in trouble. You can't do it. It's always struggled. And we think, well, you know, if we could go back to the good old days when everybody went to church, those may have been the worst days. Because everybody was going to church, and guess what? Nobody believed. 
They didn't believe in God, they just went to church. God is most present in our lives when it seems like He's most absent. And that's the message of Esther. Where is He? Will He protect His people? Now that we're going to install a new president in a few days, how many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you are terrified? Oh, the country's going downhill. This is the end of everything. Really? Well, you need to read the book of Esther. So, we're going to look at where God is. Will He protect His people? And perhaps the most uh, difficult subject is going to be, what is the relationship between human will, free will, and God's providence and sovereignty. And this is uh, a huge issue and always has been in the church, in the theology of the church. The only thing that connects, by the way, the only thing that connects the book of Esther to the Bible at all is a brief mention in the middle of the book of about the Jews and about Haman, the Agagite. So remember that. Write it down somewhere. The Jews and Mordecai and Esther and Haman the Agagite because that's what draws this story down into the biblical narrative of redemptive history and it's really uh, quite amazing. You can't use the book of Esther as a moral guideline. You don't want to tell your kids, be like Esther because the book of Esther is rated R. It's uh, it's pretty graphic, and I'll I'll soften it because we do have kids. But there's a lot of moral ambiguity in the Book of Esther. There's lying and there's cheating and there's sexuality that is rampant. It, it's it, it does not fit into any paradigm that you can imagine. It's not an example of how to do things, except for the fact that Esther is very courageous. Mordecai, her uncle, is very courageous, and they. You know, they do have a good side to them, but there's also all this other mess. Think about your own life. Now, I don't know about you, that's my life. My life is a moral mess. Now, I know that I look virtuous, and I am the pastor, and so I get to tell you that I'm virtuous, uh, and a professionally holy person. This is just not going over today, is it? You need to know that to be a Christian, you have to understand your moral ambiguity. You have to really be in touch with the mess that you are. That qualifies you to be a Christian. That brings you into the tribe to know the mess, the brokenness, the constant uh, rumblings inside of our hearts. And if you know that, you'll relate totally to Esther and Mordecai and all the rest of the characters in this. So what the relationship is. Well, look, very briefly, let me give you a quick introduction. Chapter 1 and 2 shows us this opulent Persian court where King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is gathering all of his army, his generals, all the nobles from across the known world for 180 days. This is half a year in order to display his greatness. And in this chapter, the part that I just read, there is not another description of any building or 
lavish architecture, except for the temple of God. So you have the temple of God, which is described in minute detail, lavishly and gloriously with gold and tapestries and all this stuff. And now you have this. What is the author wanting you to do? He's wanting you, people that know. See, the people that read this book did believe in God, even though he's not there. They would have known. Oh, he's not going to talk about God. That's because he's really present. Oh, Persia has got this great, magnificent army. They've got billions and billions of of tons of silver and gold. And they've got a king and they've got a beautiful queen. And they've got armies and they control the world. And look at this temple they would have thought of their temple. There would have been an immediate connection for them. Then there's the queen. Here's some of the humor that you see. Here's this all-powerful king, Ahasuerus. What he says goes. His word is law. And he has all of these advisors, seven nobles and seven eunuchs and all this perfect political control. But he can't get his wife to come to the banquet. She tells him no. No. Like Kenny Youngman said, my wife and I have found out the way to have a perfect marriage. Twice a week we go out on a date. A little dinner, a little wine, some candlelight. She goes on Tuesday, I go on Thursday. So, I've told that joke every year for 20 years here at Christ the King. All right. So, the idea, right away you see the Jewish humor. Here's this great, magnificent king, Ahasuerus. He demands his wife come and show off her beauty. And she says, no. And he doesn't know what to do. You'll see next week. He is completely at a loss. You would have thought that this magnificent king, especially in a day when women were beat down pretty much, He could have just snapped his fingers. She would have had to show up. No, I'm not coming. And it throws his entire uh, kingdom into a turmoil, which we'll talk about next year. In the middle of the book, chapters 3 through 8, we are introduced to this character, Haman. Now, Haman is an Agagite. An Agagite is a descendant of the Amalekites. Now, this may seem tedious, But this is the genius of your Bible. I never knew this until I started studying this book. This is how, you know, I went through graduate school. I'm the smartest person I know. And really, I didn't know this. The Agagites, King Agag, the Amalekites, and Mordecai, Mordecai is identified with Kish, the son of Benjamin, the family of King Saul. And King Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekites. He didn't do it and he took plunder and therefore Samuel dethroned him and brought the true king, King David. Everyone reading this book, and we should, I'm ashamed that I didn't know this. Everybody that that would have read this book would have said, aha, Haman is an Agagite. Of course he's an Agagite. And of course Mordecai is a Benjamite. Of course he's a descendant of Agai, uh, or, or of, of Kish. Of course. This is the age-old battle. And I'll explain that in detail when we get into Amazing what's going on here without a mention, not a word about God, His providence, His sovereignty. Nothing. Nothing theological. No angels, no miracles. No nothing. 
Here comes Haman. And how does Haman decide how to destroy the Jews? By consulting the poor, the purim, the dice. And when he does it, there's no mention of any spirits or any magic or nothing. There's not even a mention of chance. It's just he casts the dice and the dice told him, here is the auspicious day to destroy the Jews, which is what the story is about. And yet behind the scenes, those dates are turned around, everything is turned around to where the Jews are delivered at the end of the book and we get the... um, the, the celebration of the Feast of Purim, which is still a feast that's celebrated today. So I'm going to talk very quickly. Let me give you three things, and then we'll be done. And next week, I hope I'll do a little better job and give you uh, a little bit more, pull it all together. So forgive me, I'm trying to say a lot with not much time. The first thing we're going to look at is providence. The second thing we'll look at is peripety or peripetia which is uh, a word that describes the reversal of fortunes. This is the structure of this book. If you understand God's providence, if you understand his peripatia, that he is reversing fortunes, and he does it so much in the book, the coincidences are so many that you all, after a while you almost start to laugh. And that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be chuckling a little bit as you read the stories of the wife not wanting to come when the king commands and how they, uh, how, and yet at the, underneath all that there's a genocide that is pending, which uh, I hope you'll, you'll look into this week if you read the book. Uh, so providence, peripatia, and finally we'll look at Purim. What is the, the festival. You see, this festival is not one of the three great feasts that that was introduced by Moses, but the Jews continued to keep this feast along with Hanukkah throughout their history, and Jesus our Lord celebrated these feasts as well. So to, to know that is very important. To this day, the entire book of Esther is read in a Jewish family who's serious about their Bible. Read the entire book of Esther on the, uh, the, the nights of Purim and uh, uh, in order to chuckle at the great kings that have tried to destroy them. I mean, they're all gone. And the Jewish nation is still alive. And how many kingdoms have tried to destroy the church? And we're still here. And so that's what we're looking at. Providence, peripatia, and Purim, the deliverance of God's people. So let me say a few things about providence. And if you have any questions, happy to stay afterwards because these are, these are tough subjects. Providence, sovereignty of God, free will. How free is your will? Where is God? Where is he acting? Uh, Dr. Sproul in his, in his book on providence said this, the doctrine that distinguishes or sets apart Reformed theology, that's the theology that we have in our church, from every other theological system is the doctrine of of providence. Now, if you ask the normal person who has come to what we call Reformed theology, and they've asked John Calvin into their heart, they think Reformed theology is all about the doctrine of election and predestination. And it's not. Reformed theology, the thing that distinguishes it from every other system of theology 
including much of contemporary Christianity, is the doctrine of providence. Um, The shorter catechism asks the question, what is God's providence? And the answer is, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. What that means is that God is working in his creation in such a way that there is not one loose molecule in the universe. That also is uh, a quote from Dr. Sproul. There's not one loose molecule. He even wrote a whole book about it called Not a Chance. That chance is just a word that describes mathematical possibilities to whatever degree. Okay? That's all chance is. So chance is nothing. It's not a thing. It's just a word that describes a mathematical possibility. Providence, on the other hand, is not a mathematical probability. It is a certainty that when I go like this, God was somehow involved in me raising my finger. Everything that is happening is under the guidance, governing, power of God. Now, if that doesn't set off some alarm bells for you, then you are probably, you need a counselor and medication. That should have raised a lot of alarm bells. You mean he's controlling everything? Everything? Yes. He is. I don't understand. How does that interact with... Okay. Listen to this. God is most present. This is by uh, theologian Karen Jobes. Amazing. Uh, this, this gal, she is sharp. God is most present when it appears he is most absent. The author of Esther is suggesting that beneath the surface, listen, beneath the surface of even, even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen, uncontrollable power is at work that can neither be explained nor thwarted. Can't be explained and it can't be thwarted. Here's another uh, woman theologian, brilliant lady, uh, Joyce Baldwin. There are two conflicting worldviews in the book. One is represented by Haman. He's the evil guy in the book who believes in chance fate. He's going to cast the Purim, the dice. He believes in chance fate. The casting of Purim, uh, and, and he thinks that on the basis of this, he can annihilate God's people. And I'll show you some of the humor. It's really, it's really quite funny. In other words, he is a practical atheist. And the writer portrays his world only to parody his world. The other worldview, interesting enough, also lays stress on human initiative and human action. Mordecai and Esther deciding and making plans completely independent of Purim, of casting lots or asking what is God's will, 
Uh, I don't know what to do next. What is God's will? Where should I go? What should I do? I got to find God's will as if God is hiding his will under the chair and you've got to go search for God's will. Maybe it's under there. Maybe it's here. Maybe it's there. We don't know where it is. I know what I'll do. I'll look for an open door. I'll look for an open window. I'll look for something. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to look for it because surely he's got a will and I got to find it because he's hiding it from me. Does that sound familiar? It's frustrating as all get out. A lot of times we're asking, what is God's will? And you know what he wants? He wants you to just make a darn decision. Just decide. Do something. Yeah, but what if it's not your will? Do it anyway. Because if you do it, it's his will. Now that also should raise a lot of questions, right? What about sin? What about evil? Oh boy. We're going to have a ball, folks. I hope you'll tell everyone uh, to come. I'll make you crazy by the time it's all over. Two worldviews. An unseen world that is controlling. And yet, what is the relationship between that control, that providence, and everything else? Well, let me see if I can tell you very quickly. And, and, and then we'll move on because I don't want to keep, keep us too long. If you believe that God created the world or that the world just happened by chance and that it's operating by natural laws and it's just running like a clock, then what we call that is deism. I'm sure you all are familiar with that. The world's just running and everything is just up to us. God set it in motion. Everything evolved the way he wanted it to. And now it's just operating according to natural laws and we're in it, and we have complete free agency, and so it's just us and the world. That's called deism. On the other hand, is God is totally involved. He controls everything. There's no loose molecules. Everything is determined. Everything is preset. And so, inshallah, whatever God wills, God willing, we say, in Christianity. That is what we call fatalism. Fatalism. So you've got deism and you've got fatalism. And then over here, and this is the minority report, folks, is Reformed theology. And Reformed theology is not a mixture of those two. Reformed theology is 100% of those two. 100%. See, when Donald Trump was elected president 2016. The American evangelicals in this country said, well, he's a, he's a shady character, but he's Cyrus. He's the, Medi- he's the Medo-Persian king Cyrus. He's going to bring good to the church. Are you all listening? He's King Cyrus. Did any of you hear that? We know he's not a good guy, but he's going to work on behalf of the church. He's going to do some good things. And I was stupid enough to ask the question, how come he's not King Nebuchadnezzar? See, how do you know? How can you read the tea leaves of God's providence and say, this is good, this is not good, this is bad, this is not... How do you know? How can you trust those things? And what the Bible tells you is you cannot trust those things. 
Those are just you putting your ideas onto those things. You have to trust what God's Word says. And this is where the peripatia comes in, the reversal of fortune. God promises you and me, from the Garden of Eden until now, He promises, I will reverse your fortunes. My will will be done. We pray it every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. My will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You pray that on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing, my will cannot be thwarted. In the immediate moment of an election, and you say, okay, this is bad. The devil's brought us the Democrats. Uh, it's the devil. How can you know that? You can say it, but how do you know? You don't know. And there's never been a time when the people of God need to understand these deep things that are true about Him and His Word like they do now because we're getting carried away by all kinds of crazy stuff. God has promised you and me that He will reverse our fortunes and He's going to do it over an entire history in a lifetime of not only humankind, but your lifetime. That even when your life comes to an end, when you die, He is going to reverse that. In that you won't die. You will be born into His kingdom, awaiting the resurrection. And then finally, Purim. We don't cast lots. We believe when we pray, if we say, I don't know what to do, Lord, but I want to do whatever it is that is your will. Therefore, I'm going to decide by wisdom, by what I know is true, I'm going to make this decision and I'm going to trust you with the results. And if you do that and things go bad with the decision, if you've done it in faith, you will be able to persevere through that and not be saying, oh my gosh, I missed God's will. What would be, what a horrible way to live. Oh my gosh, I missed His will. Things are not going well. If that's true, then Jesus missed God's will. Because everything went wrong for Him. And yet it was God's will. So, ultimately, God promises to reverse our fortunes. The book of Esther is all about that. Jesus Christ is present in the book of Esther in some amazing ways. And uh, the ultimate peripety is Jesus on a cross, Jesus in a grave, Jesus scourged, Jesus on trial, Jesus taking our sins on Himself. That is a reversal that the whole Bible testifies to. And so, um, I hope you enjoy this series. And uh, I know today's a little weird. We didn't go down in the bushes too much. But uh, uh, anyway, let's pray. Father, thanks uh, for today. Thanks for this wonderful book. We know that there's uh, a lot here that we need to learn. And I pray, Father, that you will help us um, to do that. In Christ's name, amen.